Good afternoon. Uh, if I can have everybody's attention, we'll go ahead and get started. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, very pleased to have you here today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, Department of Homeland Security and the effectiveness of uh, counterterrorism programs. Uh, before we turn things over to our first speaker, let me uh, briefly and, and perhaps shamelessly plug uh, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, this is a publication that we release every four years. Uh, it's intended to give uh, folks on Capitol Hill or other, other policymakers uh, a little background from a Cato free market libertarian perspective, uh, a little background on basically uh, every issue you deal with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from subjects like today's topic of counterterrorism to uh, entitlement reform, uh, civil liberties, you name it, it's in the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. So if you don't have a copy uh, or if uh, you have one in your office but your, uh, your coworker hogs it a lot, uh, feel free to let me know or, or one of my colleagues here, Kurt Couchman, is in the back there and uh, we'll be happy to get you one. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first speaker. We're uh, very pleased to have uh, Benjamin Friedman here. Uh, ben is uh, Cato's uh, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, where he studies defense and homeland security. Uh, he is an expert on topics including counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics, uh, with a focus on threat perception. He's also co-author, uh, I'm sorry, co-editor of a brand new Cato release uh, entitled Terroriz Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. And uh, within that book, he is the author of one of the, the chapters uh, entitled Managing Fear, the Politics of Homeland Security. Uh, ben is a graduate of Dartmouth College, and he is currently a Ph.D. candidate in political science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. With that, I'll give you Ben Friedman. Thanks. Uh, thanks, everybody, for, for coming out today uh, for such a, a sort of a boring-sounding topic, uh, evaluating Homeland Security or whatever it is. Uh, we wanted to give it a more exciting title, uh, Are We Too Safe, was going to be the title, but somebody thought that might be too provocative. Um, uh, this, my presentation comes out of a larger uh, project that we've been doing at, at Cato uh, uh, on counterterrorism funded by the Atlantic Philanthropies and the Open Society Institute. And uh, this book uh, that, that Brandon just held up is a product of that project, one, one product of it. Um, and uh, as he mentioned, I, I wrote a chapter uh, in that book along with being one of the editors of it. And uh, uh, the, the talk I'm going to give today uh, builds on, the, on that or comes out of that chapter I wrote. Um, th that chapter uh, argues that we tend in the United States to overreact to terrorism. Um, it it uh, uh, wasting money and lives. Uh, it explains the chapter does why that happens, um, and then it offers some suggestions on what to do about it, what to do about this tendency to overreact and, and waste money. I uh, want to focus today on, on the last part um, of of my chapter on on what to do about it, on the what to do about it part. Um, but before I do that, let me just uh, briefly uh, give a couple reasons why we, why we tend to overreact to terrorism. I, I think we, we tend to do so first because of our psychology. Uh, because uh, human beings can't be experts in everything, we have to be what economists call cognitive misers. Uh, and that means we use mental shortcuts uh, to generate our preferences about risk and about the policies that meet them, uh, be they environmental hazards or terrorists or any other sort of danger or harm. Um, and, uh, and that can cause us to, to, uh, to overestimate the probability of harm. That's particularly true uh, with regard to terrorism, uh, which has qualities uh, that make it uh, particularly prone to this problem, particularly prone to causing a fearful and emotional response, which is arguably uh, its point. Um, uh, 
the second reason we tend to overreact uh, to terrorism is because we get our information about it uh, largely from people with an interest in alarming us, uh, be they uh, people uh, in government uh, that need a, a sense of threat uh, to keep funding for their mission or politicians who are competing to appeal to an overly alarmed public. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. So if you want information uh, or more, uh, want me to go on or to argue with me about that, I'm happy to do so in the Q&A, and I, I'd encourage you to read my chapter. But the point here is that because this is a democracy, uh, public demand for overreaction encourages uh, overwrought and wasteful policies, policies that do more harm than good because of their cost, because their cost outweighs their benefit. Uh, one such overreaction in my book was the creation of the Department of Homeland Security itself, but I, I think that's a, a reaction that I think we're stuck with. Um, Another example I could give you uh, is uh, the changes in immigration policy in the United States since 9-11, uh, which have made it a lot harder for immigrants, uh, including very well-educated immigrants, to enter the country just because we've added a lot of hassle. Um, and I think that's kept out a, a large number of people who uh, down the road might have started uh, profitable companies that would have employed a lot of people, people that would have gone uh, into our universities and contributed useful research and caused scientific innovation. So we paid a very large cost for those, um, for those restrictions, and they're off the books. They're an opportunity cost that we don't really see. And I think that that's an, uh, that's an example of uh, an overreaction. Uh, the costs outweigh the benefits. John uh, Mueller is going to give more detail um, uh, about the sort of analysis uh, needed to arrive at these sort of conclusions about costs and benefits. Um, uh, but I, I, again, when I, I want to focus on, on what to do about it, on, on um, uh, how we deal with this tendency to overreact. Now, one answer, I guess, is, is you don't do anything about it. The answer is nothing, or at best you try to appeal to the general public uh, not to overreact. Um, uh, because, uh, again, it's a democracy, and you could just say, well, the way it plays out is that people's preferences manifest themselves in government programs, and if you don't like them, so what? That's the way the system works. I, um, I, I don't uh, take that approach. I think that because people make systematic mistakes about risk uh, and because they lack the incentive to investigate uh, the success of the means to the goals they prefer from government, uh, we need mechanisms in government uh, that encourage trade-offs between economy and security. We need self-evaluating organizations uh, in government that ask themselves whether the policies they're working on are somewhat cost-effective. Um, now, one uh, place in government that we ought to do that is congressional oversights commit congressional oversight committees. Uh, but limitations in staff and time uh, mean that we need to build these mechanisms. Uh, and, and this sort of self-evaluation into the executive branch. And uh, as I'll discuss, we have ways of doing that now in the executive branch, in, in, uh, in, in regulatory policy, in the Defense Department, um, and in things like the creation of inspector generals that um, often go against the agency that they work with. Um, but we need to do it, we need to do it more in, in Homeland Security. Um, so, okay, on to the meat of my presentation. I'm going to give you three strategies for uh, containing overreaction to terrorism. Let me start with the most cynical, which is uh, security theater. Here you meet demand for uh, public demand for overreaction to danger by pretending to provide it. Uh, you put on a little security show and make a lot of noise about it. Um, and uh, don't really do that much. Don't do anything that's particularly costly. The, the big, the sort of quintessential example of this 
was uh, putting National Guard troops, whose I believe a lot of uh, uh, their weapons were unarmed, in airports after 9-11. Now, this did not provide any real benefit in terms of preventing hijackings, I think, but it provided a sense of security, um, which is a real social good, and it maybe it could have helped assuage demand for more harmful uh, policies like keeping flights grounded. So that's security theater. Security theater can also occur more positively uh, you can try to redirect the political energy created by excessive fear to more useful or at least less harmful ends that, that do le- uh, little or nothing to reduce the threat that created that sort of political energy. Um, and uh, I'll give you an example. Um, after, uh, uh, in 1957, after the Soviets launched the Sputnik satellite, there was great panic in the United States about Soviet ICBM missile programs and feared that uh, they were ahead of us, and when they uh, succeeded uh, in, in making a working nuke, they would go ahead and nuke us. Um, and, and there was great demand uh, led by uh, senatorial uh, presidential hopefuls, including John F. Kennedy, to increase defense spending to try to meet this threat. President Eisenhower uh, did not share uh, the public's concern about ICBM programs. He knew that our ICM programs uh, were actually ahead of those of the Soviets, and uh, he believed in deterrence, I think. Um, and he was against increasing defense spending for a whole host of reasons. But his efforts to stem alarm, uh, he gave a series of speeches called the chin-up speeches where he was uh, telling people we're going to be okay. Uh, it didn't really work, and there continued to be this demand for increased defense spending and a public sense of panic. So the Eisenhower administration wound up doing a bunch of stuff uh, to react to the threat, and uh, that was inexpensive. They... Um, they uh, reorganized our space programs, uh, which, which is how we got NASA, and they put a lot of federal funds into education and uh, scientific research. Now, this did not do a great deal uh, to meet the Soviet ICBM threat in the near term, but it did do something to meet the political demand for wasteful responses to that threat. So that's a, a good example of security theater directing the energy into useful ends. A more nefarious example, in my opinion, uh, was the Bush administration's effort to sell its uh, foreign policy agenda, its bellicose foreign policy agenda, on the back of the terrorist threat, particularly the war in Iraq, uh, by using the terrorist threat. They were taking the political energy created by 9-11 and putting it somewhere uh, that didn't have too much to do with it. Um, So that's number one, security theater. Number two, the second strategy to contain overreaction is to encourage agencies or their subcompetitors subcomponents to fight for mission and budget, security agencies. Uh, So the most effective means of providing some goal, some good, uh, such as the mitigation of the terrorist danger, ought to gain resources and pride of place at the expense of less efficient means. Um, And if security agencies or their subcomponents fight uh, for budget, they might have reason to demonstrate how uh, their method of providing the defense that we're interested in works more effectively than their rival organizations, and even to denigrate the threat that their rival organizations uh, defend against. Um, and that can generate information for policymakers and the public. One, one way to accomplish this is management. So uh, hypothetically, if you would have said after 9-11 that we need to get better at counterterrorism uh, and that security budgets are now considered zero-sum, meaning that if one grows, uh, somebody else in the security budget realm, in the Pentagon or DHS, which wasn't yet created, or the intelligence community has to pay for it. Uh, so then agencies within the Pentagon, the, uh, the intelligence community, and those uh, that became DHS Uh, would compete to demonstrate that they best fight uh, the terrorist threat using their budget justification documents and other public statements uh, uh, to show why they deserve more budget uh, or the mission they prefer at the expense of their rivals. 
And if, I think if you would have responded to 9-11 by increasing funding for DHS, the, the FBI, and the intelligence agencies, uh, as we did, but instead you'd paid for it out of the military budget, um, rather than just lifting all boats, having a tie that lifted all boats of spending, you might have encouraged the military services to protect their, their budget and resources by going after the idea that has caused this change, going after the threat perception that has taken their funds away. And I think that would be a useful fight Potentially, it might just lead to competing threat inflation, but it also might be a useful fight that, that informed the public and policymakers. Um, another way to generate useful competition in government is to devolve decisions about resource allocation to lower and poorer levels of government. So, for example, if you stopped giving uh, Homeland Security preparedness grants, which I don't think were meant to be permanent when they were created, uh, to states. Um, they would have to decide whether or not they wanted to pay for those uh, capabilities themselves. And unlike the federal government, uh, which can run deficits and where spend it is, spending is divided into more remote silos, state and particularly local governments really feel the pain when they have to uh, uh, pick up a new spending program. So they would have had to cut uh, programs that go to police or health care or something else, uh, and uh, they might not have uh, engaged in that spending. Right now, uh, they uh, hype their, their vulnerability locally uh, to try to win federal grants. Uh, if you say you pay for it yourself, that hype goes away, which affects uh, public, uh, public opinion and perceptions. And to encourage competition between agencies, you want to empower decision makers uh, uh, in places like the Office of Management and Budget and the Congressional Budget Committees who have cross-cutting authority uh, to, to look at the value of different agencies' spending. And you can do that within agencies. You are, uh, in this strategy, you want to empower central decision makers in DHS to look across DHS programs and so forth. Um, one way to do this is to beef up the staff and bureaucratic clout of those central decision makers. OMB is very understaffed relative to anyone in the Pentagon. Um, and uh, another way to beef up their clout uh, of the central decision makers is to, is to create formal cost-benefit uh, decision mechanisms to justify their decisions. So that's the third strategy to deal with, with overreaction that I want to talk about. Cost-benefit analysis is, is really just a, a way to explore policy decisions systematically, to try as far as possible to evaluate the trade-offs inherent in spending on one thing instead of another. And if, if possible, when you do cost-benefit analysis, you're not just looking at economic repercussions. You try to price uh, security goals or even civil liberties uh, in the same way. And it's just a, a decision-making tool. It shouldn't be the final say on decisions, but it's a very useful tool. It is uh, cost-benefit analysis is a relative of operation, operations research which was a mode of defense analysis uh, that, that came out of the bureaucratic effort during World War II to better allocate resources to the war effort. Um, operations research is, is defined as a systematic method of providing executive departments with a quantitative basis for decisions regarding the operations under their control. My point is that uh, Using cost-benefit analysis helps legitimate and justify decisions to convince people uh, that you are right, you the decision-maker are right, and that you're best serving the national interest. It's social science for the national interest. Um, it, it thus heightens the power of the central decision-maker uh, and allows them uh, to make more decisions and uh, uh, do more at the expense of the uh, people within their department. Um, so rather than relying on their official authority alone to sell decisions, they use the weight of science. Or it's, or it's just a sheen. Um, 
To take a simple example, if you're in DHS and you deny a grant to a port uh, whose local interests are pushing hard for it, it's useful to have a 50-page report uh, full of charts and graphs showing why you made that decision to deny this grant to the port. Now, that will not uh, end the opposition of the local interests who, who want to get that grant, but it will convince some people that you're right, so it enhances your power. Um, an early practitioner of operations research was uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, uh, who had learned it at Harvard Business School uh, before, I think before World War II, if I'm not mistaken. And when he became Secretary of Defense, he created at the Pentagon an office uh, called uh, Systems Analysis, later changed to uh, Program Analysis and Evaluation, PA&E, um, to perform quantitative analysis of, of what weapons to buy and how many. Uh, and he created an elaborate system of decision-making at the Pentagon called Planning, Programming, Budget, Budgeting, and, and uh, the, the Planning, Programming, and Budgeting System to tie this analysis to budget decisions. Um, that was sort of the McNamara revolution. Um, and and the, the secretary and his staff used these tools, these decision-making tools, to deny to the military services money uh, for weapons uh, that the secretary viewed as wasteful overreactions to the Soviet threat. So the services were trying to end run him uh, on Capitol Hill, and uh, he had his uh, whiz kids, they were called, showing up with very fancy and impressive analysis saying why they were wrong. And that didn't win everybody over, but it probably won a few people. Uh, and this was sold as a way of making decisions scientific, of ma making better decisions. But to me, uh, the real value was in the sales side because uh, politics is largely about sales. It helped justify uh, the decisions, and it helped Secretary McNamara run the Pentagon, which is hard to do. Um, as a result, there occurred in the 1960s sort of an arms race to gain expertise in systems analysis. Uh, as all the services learned this new language and put people in think tanks who could do it, uh, who would write reports for them, uh, and that uh, neutralized the, the sort of initial advantage that, that OSD had. Everybody now spoke the language. Um, Another example of the use of scientific expertise to limit overreaction is the regulatory review process in, in the federal government, uh, which applies to most federal regulatory agencies. The motivating idea here is that agencies uh, empowered by Congress tend to overregulate against risks that the public overreacts to, uh, harming, car harming commerce without uh, commensurate gains in safety, and thus that countervailing bureaucratic forces are needed uh, to fight that in the executive branch uh, by evaluating uh, the regulation's cost effectiveness. So th there was this thing called Executive Order 12291 created in the Reagan administration uh, and continued since in, in uh, adjusted form, um, which requires agencies when they're regulating to perform cost-benefit analysis of regulations with an estimated annual cost of $100 million or greater. Um, the agency making the regulation is supposed to do this analysis uh, to show that uh, the, the benefits of this regulation outweigh the costs and that they've considered uh, other reasonable alternatives that might be cheaper. And uh, this office in, in uh, the Office of Management and Budget called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, is supposed to review those justifications. Uh, and if it doesn't like them, in theory, it can send the regulation back to the agency and say, no, regulate again, do something else. Um, now, uh, sometimes you can't do that because the regulations are mandated by Congress, um, but uh, it is a useful uh, bureaucratic check. Um, now, scholars will debate um, how effective this policy, or have debated how effective this, this process have, has been overall in curbing regulations. Some economists have tried to say, you know, what the overall economic benefit of this process had been, and they argue. Uh, but they generally agree that it's a useful tool for policymakers who use it. Uh, it's, it's something, it's an arrow in your, in your quiver um, if you're trying to uh, stop regulation. Um, 
So like PA&E in the Pentagon, it's a potentially useful tool for central decision makers to justify their decisions. Um, so how does this apply to DHS? Um, well, in DHS, uh, under uh, the last administration when Michael Sheratov was in charge, uh, the term risk management, I think, became something of a mantra, um, sort of like transformation did in the Pentagon under Rumsfeld. Uh, but I think the department today uses risk management only in a limited way. It mostly does it uh, just to consider uh, uh, grants, uh, and to look at the risk and vulnerability of the places where it's sending grants, uh, largely to fight off congressional attempts uh, to use grant programs for pork. But grants are only about 10% of the Department of Homeland Security's budget. Most of the money is in agency operations and TSA and Customs, uh, Secret Service, Coast Guard, ICE, stuff like that. Um, and so I think real risk management means using cost-benefit analysis or systems analysis, whatever you want to call it, more widely in the Department of Homeland Security to make budgetary decisions and send money uh, back and forth among these agencies. Thus far, uh, since the Department of Homeland Security was created, the budget shares of each of the sub-agencies of Homeland Security have stayed about equal, which says to me, in other words, uh, the total budget is growing, but they're getting equal slices of the pie, which says to me that there's not a lot of systematic decision-making going on in the leadership, in the budget office, about what programs are more effective. They seem to be defaulting to the status quo. Um, so I think the Secretary of Homeland Security ought to use uh, his office of PNE, and DHS has, uh, because it was sort of based on DOD, has its own PNE. Uh, the secretary ought to use that office uh, to, to do cost-benefit analysis or trade-off analysis and look at what programs are achieving their goals of, uh, efficiently, which might be only a few, and which aren't. And, and that analysis can be used to justify decisions uh, to move funds from relatively inefficient to more efficient programs, uh, from TSA to uh, the Secret Service or to Customs or wherever we want. Um, and in an ideal world, it could even be used to cut spending overall. I doubt that will happen. Um, now, today, DHS is uh, covered by the executive orders that say you have to do regulatory review, and it does perform analysis on uh, when it regulates. So, for example, you know, DHS is responsible because of legislation for this regulation that says you have to show a passport when you come back into the United States from Canada. Um, uh, and, and DHS performed analysis on that, but if you read it, um, the, the effort to estimate how many people, uh, the benefit, which is measured in lives saved, was perfunctory. Uh, they didn't uh, make a serious effort uh, to, to figure out the real benefit of the program. Uh, and so I think they ought to do that. I think they, they ought to base their, their estimates of benefits from, uh, from Homeland Security regulations on uh, history. Now it's based on nightmare scenarios. I think they ought to look at historical terrorism fatality figures in the United States or elsewhere uh, and compare that to the, to the costs of, of the program. So with the passport program, you're looking at a hit on tourism and business coming across the uh, border, and they ought to do more uh, to compare those. In OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs has not rejected any of DHS's regulations, uh, although I, maybe it has in the last few months, but I don't think so. Um, and so I think OIRA ought to uh, look a little harder at DHS regulations and send some back. Um, and, uh, you know, I think even where Congress requires regulations, like the passport regulation that I, I mentioned, um, or, or the requirement, uh, which has uh, been postponed but is still coming, that all shipping containers coming into the United States be searched for uh, bad things. Uh, even where uh, it's required by legislation, performing the cost-benefit analysis and publishing it can aid debate and uh, aid those uh, like me who think that these are a, uh, uh, onerous, overly onerous regulations that ought to be stopped. 
Um, now, this kind of analysis, cost-benefit analysis, what John is going to talk about, is always going to be controversial uh, because of uncertainty about costs and benefits uh, and because uh, it requires uh, comparing uh, economic and security goods, which means uh, ultimately putting a value on human life so that you can compare. Um, and that offends people. But uh, I would just say that whenever we make security policies, we are implicitly or by default doing this. We, we're performing this sort of analysis one way or the other. Um, and so uh, I think we ought to do so openly and explicitly and use this uh, as a decision-making tool. So that's my spiel. Um, sorry if I went on a little too long here. And uh, I'll turn it over to Brandon. He's going to turn it over to John. Great stuff. Thanks, Ben. Um, next up, we're uh, extremely pleased to have join us uh, Dr. John Mueller. He holds the, uh, the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at, the, uh, at Ohio State University, uh, sometimes called The Ohio State University, I, I hear. Uh, he teaches courses there in international relations. Uh, he also has a, a recent book called Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, which was published in November of 2009. Uh, let me just give you a, a, a quick review, a, a quick sentence from a, a review that, that came out about the book. Atomic obsession casts a skeptical eye on the nuclear mythology pervaded by hawks, doves, realists, and alarmists alike and shows why nuclear weapons deserve a minor role in national security policymaking and virtually no role in our nightmares. It is the most reassuring book ever written about nuclear weapons and one of the most enjoyable to read. And that was from Stephen Walt, author of Taming American Power. Uh, his next project that he's working on, he's co-authoring a book called Terrorism, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security. And Ben alluded to that in his remarks. Uh, in that book, um, Dr. Mueller applies cost-benefit analysis to the issues of homeland security. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Mueller. Okay, thank you. Really nice to be here. Um, I would like to uh, give you some glimpses of how one might apply cost-benefit analysis to a, 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 a program that exists. Uh, we have something perhaps for a metaphor here uh, on the screen. Uh, this is Melissa Williamson of Roanoke, uh, Virginia, who is puffing on a cigarette and is worried about the effect on her unborn child of the sound of jackhammers from the construction truck. Uh, I'm not going to say that's exactly a metaphor, but uh, you might want to keep it in mind. Um, anyway, the book I'm working on now with Mark Stewart, who is a risk analyst and engineer at the University of Newcastle in Australia, is, is on the board there. And what we're trying to do, basically, um, is apply it, – it's, it's perhaps the world's most uncreative, unimaginative, uncutting-edge un, uh, book ever. Uh, what we're trying to do is apply standard, old-fashioned risk, analysts, uh, risk analysis and cost-benefit analysis has been accepted by regulators, governments, businesses for decades. And we're not trying to cut – it's not trying to be cutting edge. We don't have fancy new models. We're just applying it to the issue of terrorism. Uh, since 9-11, the amount of money that's been spent by the government, business, and local governments in the United States on, on, uh, on uh, counterterrorism is approaching, it looks like, a trillion dollars. That's the increase, a trillion dollars. And even in Washington, that's real money. So what we're trying to do is sort of look at that and find out if there are areas in which it's been cost-effective and which not. And I'd like to give you two quick examples of one way of, of dealing with it. Uh, <coughs> one is the addition of the idea of acceptable risk. Now, the basic idea 
of acceptable risk is that some risks are acceptable, some risks are unacceptable. Uh, unacceptable risks are ones in which their probability of, of being killed by some, some, something or other is high enough such that it's worth spending a fair amount of money on trying to reduce that risk. Acceptable risks are ones where the uh, risk is so low that it doesn't make much sense to spend any additional money in trying to make, make it even lower uh, unless those proposals are really quite cheap. For example, drowning in a bathtub um, or drowning in a toilet or something like that. You could solve the problem by getting rid of toilets or getting rid of, of, uh, of uh, bathtubs, but that seems to be not really a very good idea. A warning label on a bathtub saying, please don't drown here, it may be okay because that's very cheap, assuming it's effective. <laughs> Um, but anyway, the, 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 uh, and no one knows exactly what the numbers would be, but essentially what's happened, really quite remarkably, with studies of government agencies around the world, the developed world, is that there's something of a feeling that if the chance is, uh, uh, if the chance, uh, the annual fatality risk, the, uh, the average, say, American's chance of being killed by this particular risk is uh, worse than one in 100,000, then it's unacceptable and you ought to think about it. If it's worse than, if it's, if it's, if it's higher than one in a million, Basically, it's probably an acceptable risk. Uh, so what we've done here, it's going to be a little bit hard to see, perhaps, and some people are behind the screen, so that's not going to help much. Uh, but there's, this is a series of risks which are considered unacce unacceptable. Uh, World War II is an unacceptable risk. Cancer, your chance of being killed in cancer is about one in 500 per year. One out of every 500 Americans dies from cancer every year. That would be a lot of money should be spent on trying to make that lower. Um, uh, the uh, traffic accidents, about your chance in the United States of being killed in a traffic accident in eight years, about one in 8,000. That's much too high, and efforts have been made, obviously, huge amounts of efforts to improve safety uh, by making better cars and better, road, better roads. Um, the uh, uh, industrial accidents, the intifada is in there, terrorism in the United States. Uh, for one year, namely 2001, your chance of being killed by terrorists in 2001 was one in 100,000. In other words, if you had another 9-11 every year, your chance of being killed would reach the point where it would barely be considered an unacceptable risk. Um, the drowning in bathtub is about one in a million, and most of the real terrorist risks are here. Uh, the uh, the uh, your chance of being killed by terrorists uh, in the United States over a 30- or 40-year period is about one in three and a half million. Uh, your chance in Canada is even lower, and in Britain, outside of Northern Ireland, is also lower. So the point is that terrorist risk, the risk presented by terrorism under present circumstances, is acceptable. Maybe you should spend limited amounts of money to make that even lower, but spending exp doing expensive ventures is not worth it. Uh, essentially, the only way, if you argue that basically the developments have kept the, these numbers that low, what you have to argue is that the, the money we've been spending on counterterrorism, additional after 9-11, uh, has prevented at least as much terrorism in the United States as was committed on 2001. Now, there's at least one, uh, 3,000 people that have to die every year from terrorism to, to make that, become, in the United States, to make that uh, uh, be a, an unacceptable risk. Um, okay, I'm hurrying along, or there's another way of looking at it, but let me skip that. Uh, let me deal with, um, it basically says the same thing I said before, but in a different way. Another possibility is to deal with costs and benefits of, of, of homeland security. And what we've done, uh, Mark and I, is made three assumptions uh, and then sort of ass assessed it. And again, this is standard stuff. This is not fancy uh, stuff. Uh, first of all, the first assumption is that we assume that pre-9-11 security measures continued at the same level. Uh, and, uh, and in addition to that, we would have increased public awareness, obviously, of terrorism after 9-11. 
Uh, and we assume that that basically reduced the likelihood of terrorism or the cost of terrorism by 50 percent. So your chance that basically the, the stuff that was there before 9-11 reduced uh, the chance of picking up a terrorist or being able to reduce the damage done by terrorists was reduced basically by 50 percent. Then what we do is look at only enhanced security measures uh, since 9-11. And we assume that the enhanced security measures, which cost basically a trillion dollars total over that period, 10 years uh, roughly, uh, have reduced the likelihood of a successful terrorist attack or have reduced the consequences by a further 45 percent. So therefore, we assume that if it is the case that uh, pre-9-11 reduce your risk by 50 percent uh, and the enhanced increase reduce it by an even another 45 percent, uh, basically you're 95 percent safe, essentially, which is you know, about as good as you can help hope for anything. Uh, it's also the case that the cheap and easy things are the things you do first. So the pre-9-11 thing, and also fairly effective ones, obviously, if, if you can prevent traffic accidents by simply putting up a sign saying slow down, then that's very cheap to do. If you have to rebuild the road to, to reduce it, that's a lot more expensive. So you do the cheap, easy things first. So that would be in the pre-9-11 uh, sort of thing. Uh, then what we do is consider not uh, only federal, state, and local expenditures enhanced since 9-11, increased expenditures since 9-11, uh, 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 and we leave out uh, private expenditures, private business expenditures, and we also leave out the costs of the wars in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. So we're only dealing basically with domestic security. Um, what, this, what this suggests, the final analysis, uh, is that um, in order for the money to the enhanced expenditures to be cost effective, uh, you would, uh, uh, you'd have to have these kinds of numbers coming up. Let me explain what the numbers mean. On the left, it says, what's the losses from an, uh, an, a terrorist attack? A successful terrorist attack, like probably if the bomb had gone off in Times Square, uh, would have cost about $100 million. That includes property damage, the, uh, the, the cost of human life that would be lost, uh, and uh, a drop in tourism and other, other economic indirect costs. Uh, so basically, in order for uh, the cost, in order for the expenditures to be cost effective, you would have to have 2,222 attacks like that each year. That would say about six per day. If you think our homeland enhanced homeland security measures have uh, have have cut out six uh, attacks of the Times Square type per year per day, then it becomes cost effective. If you think that may be a bit high, then it, it fails a cost-benefit test. Uh, the other things are for bigger attacks. Uh, for example, go down to 200 billion, uh, which is the essentially what we figure is the cost of 9/11. That includes the property damage, which is about 40 billion dollars, the cost of the human life loss, and the effect on GDP and travel and tourism and you know a bunch of other things. It comes out about 200 billion. By far, by far, the greatest, horrible, worst terrorist attack in all of history. Um, uh, if, you have, if you think that we have prevented one of those per year, or actually a little bit more than one per year, maybe five every four years, uh, then, cost, then, then basically the, uh, the uh, homeland security expenditures are cost effective. Most people, of course, don't talk about that. They mostly think about the Times Square bomber type. That's the kind we're going to have, and there's lots of people saying we don't have to worry that much about another 9-11. Uh, what we may have to worry about is the Times Square bomber or the, or the underwear bomber or something like that. Those are going to be m much lower. They're certainly not going to cost $200 billion, however tragic they may be. To get higher than that, you basically nu need nuclear weapons. A uh, 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 trillion-dollar cost uh, might be if there was a bomb going off in, a, in the Los Angeles um, uh, Long Beach port. 
Uh, there's one study out of RAND, which I think has, the number is probably high, but nonetheless, the basic idea is okay, that if a, bomb, a nuclear bomb was set off by a terrorist there, that you might have a trillion dollars worth of damage, both uh, direct and indirect, most of it indirect, because uh, it wouldn't kill that many people directly. You need at least one of those every five years. Or if you set off a bomb at Times Square, a nuclear bomb at Times Square, or at, um, at uh, the um, um, uh, Grand Central Station or something in New York, uh, you could possibly get it up to $5 trillion. So if you think that one of those is extremely likely, then the cost-benefit analysis would suggest that it's been worth the expenditures, except in those cases what you want to do is mainly spend just on nuclear weapons, not all this other stuff. Obviously, protecting a bank building by putting on a few security guards is not going to have much effect from nuclear weapons. Um, okay, the book, uh, uh, the book uh, that was mentioned, Atomic Obsession, has a se section about the likelihood of atomic terrorism, uh, and it's also in my, it's also uh, that chapter, parts of it are, are reprinted in the uh, ter Terrorizing Ourselves book. And I don't have time to go into it, but you can read it, read it there if you want. Um, uh, but basically, the possibility, I think, of a nuclear bomb going up, being set off by a terrorist is vanishingly small. Uh, what I do is try to look at the things that you might, oh, let, let me say, there's, there's two things, sorry, skip this, I'll get to nuclear weapons in just a second. There's two things that basically get into the trillion or five trillion dollar effect. One is overreaction that Ben has already talked about, and Osama bin Laden has said explicitly that that's his goal. Uh, to uh, cause the United States to overreact and spend money on wars abroad and so forth. Uh, effectively, therefore, the, by far the most effective, cost-effective way to deal with terrorism is to not overreact, which basically doesn't cost anything, except, of course, you might lose your job. Um, the, uh, which is a very small price to pay, not for you necessarily, but for other people. Uh, the point is if overreaction costs far more than terrorism has ever cost, including even in the case of 9-11, including not even including the wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Uh, the, and the other effect would be nuclear weapons. Okay, what I tried to do is basically is uh, I, uh, try to figure out if you're an atomic terrorist and you wanted to build a bomb, what would you have to do? And I come up with basically 20 steps you'd have to cover. Uh, this is the first seven, mostly involving uh, bribing various people to get the fissile material, the uranium, hydrogen-rich uranium, out. Uh, the second is a set of things of actually building the bomb, which is extraordinarily difficult, the various steps you have to do there. And the final set is basically setting off the bomb, getting it to where you want it, and then uh, setting it off. And I think this is a, a low number, 20. If you accept uh, these as basically being independent or conditionally independent in various ways, um, statisticians have various ways of talking about it, uh, and if you assume that there's a 50-50 chance of overcoming each of these 20 barriers, all of which are rather difficult, but none of them is impossible, uh, the chance of being successful in making your bomb if you're a terrorist is about one in a million. Uh, if more realistically you think the chance of being, there, of being successful at each barrier is about one in three, uh, your chance of being successful is about one in three and a half billion. Uh, it does not seem to be a high likelihood threat. Obviously, be very uh, d uh, dangerous, but uh, it, the likelihood is vanishingly small. Okay, let me conclude with a few other things. Uh, uh, talk mainly about probability neglect. Um, the uh, since I only have a few minutes now. Uh, the, um, uh, one of the problems we find repeatedly is not talking about the likelihood, not talking about the probability. Um, and uh, there's sort of three ways this is done. One is a preoccupation with worst-case scenarios. What happens is you say, well, what if a nuclear weapon goes off in Times Square? You sort of stop thinking about probabilities because it would be so horrible. 
and so consequently, there's a tendency in the Department of Homeland Security to talk about what they thought they called reasonable worst-case scenarios, which means mainly they leave out things like the Martians coming in and doing it, as far as I can see. Uh, but, but basically, when they talk about, suppose Timothy McVeigh could get here with that kind of truck bomb, as opposed to the most likely uh, uh, thing that you might want to do. Um, another thing is basically adding rather than multiplying probabilities. What you're supposed to do is multiply the probability. Uh, you, have a, you have a consequence, and its expected uh, utility, your expected value is the consequence, like blowing up this building, times the probability. The problem is if you the probability is so incredibly low that if you multiply that, no matter how ca catastrophic the attack would be, uh, it basically comes out to be it isn't worth spending money on. So there's a tendency to add the probability as opposed to multiplying, at least in some cases. The Congressional Budget Office has criticized that technique. It's not used all the time, but it has been used sometimes by DHS. And the third is basically exaggerating terrorist capabilities. The total number of people killed by Muslim extremists since 9-11 throughout the whole world outside of war zones, including Bali, including London, including a lot of other places, uh, it comes to a few hundred per year. Um, let me give you a, sort of a final thing here so we want to leave some time for uh, 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 questions. Uh, this is the Department of Homeland Security's only comment in its National uh, protection, uh, Infrastructure Protection Plan uh, from last year about the enemy. The enemy is relentless, patient, opportunistic, and flexible, shows an understanding of the potential consequences of carefully planned attacks on economic, transportation, and symbolic targets, seriously threatens national security, and could inflict mass casualties, weaken the morale, the economy, and damage public morale and confidence. Um, well, that probably does apply to some terrorists, like one out of every 3,000 or something like that, maybe including the ones on 9-11. But it certainly doesn't apply to the vast majority of terrorists who are much more like the shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, or the Times Square bomber. Uh, they're mostly, mostly, you know, uh, Bruce Schneier has written an article called Portrait of the Terrorist as an Idiot. Um, and that basically fits. That doesn't mean there aren't clever terrorists out there, and, and it, 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 it's not... It is true that some do learn, though most terrorists do not learn from what they've done. There's a whole bunch of studies of what terrorists do. Um, and, but, but to say that that's all, that's all they said, they're all terrorists are like that. So they're taking an extreme terrorist uh, and assuming that's basically common. Um, let me give you a conclude on this. This is uh, by uh, Michael Sheehan, uh, he, uh, who is the, the former deputy director for counterterrorism in New York City. Um, in uh, a recent book, he said he went in in 2003 and he told his bosses, Kelly and Cohen, that I thought al-Qaeda was simply not very good. Under the withering heat of the post-9-11 environment, they were simply not getting it done. Al-Qaeda wasn't. Uh, I said that nobody else was saying, uh, so we underestimated al-Qaeda's capabilities before 9-11 and we underestimated them after. Um, now, the response to this is from a different book, but he says he could see that they were taken aback. It was not so much that they disagreed uh, they, uh, they understood only too well the way the public and politicians would react if headlines started to read, Commissioner disses Qaeda. That is a faith, you know, we certainly do not want New York newspapers to be publishing the truth. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the support, furthermore, support for counterterrorism would start to crumble. If al-Qaeda is basically a bunch of boneheads, why are we spending all this money on it? That would be the question, and you wouldn't get the money. So therefore, you can't say it. So the, uh, and then furthermore, the CIA thing, suppose we did agree with this, and then they set something off. They got lucky again. Uh, then we'd, you know, we'd be in big be, be, be trouble. So therefore, we have to spend every possible conceivable cent to make sure that we don't get embarrassed. So therefore, we have to prepare for everything. Uh, if the bad guys got lucky. So we all agreed, Kelly, Cohen, and Sheehan, it would be better if Sheehan kept his estimate to himself for a while. 
that basic mentality, it seems to me, infects the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole situation. And the result of that has been um, essentially immoral. That is to say, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent uh, to save lives that are extremely unlikely to be expended. That same money, for example, expended on highway repair, on cancer research, on a million other unacceptable risks, uh, would have saved far more lives than the trillion dollars that had been thrown away at Homeland Security uh, beyond what was pre previously spent over the last um, uh, the, the expenditures, the increased expenditures over the last ten years. Okay, on that cheerful note, let me end.